0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half fast history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half fast history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a bloke whose name was... Moondine Joe. He was a, he was a convict. He was transported to Western Australia in the mid 19th century, and he became very famous for his many jail breaks. He was uh, he was in and out of prison for most of his life, and a lot of the times he was out of prison. Um, <laughs> it wasn't exactly with the blessing of the authorities. He was quite a character, I can tell you. He, um, he didn't seemed to be able to keep away from crime, but every time he was locked up, he'd find a a new way to abscond. Quite amazing, really. Uh, Moondine Joe, he he had quite a few adventures, quite a few misadventures, you might imagine, for a jailbird like this. Today, we're going to get across all the highlights. I mean, this bloke, he nicked everything from wine to cheese and bacon to horses. He escaped regular boring prisons, all the way up to the ones with cells more or less specifically built just to hold him. And uh, as he, you know, escaped and got recaptured over the years, he kept getting years and years added onto his sentences, but then just kept on having those years kind of melt away, despite the constant jailbreaking. Very interesting indeed. And when he wasn't in prison, he was either cutting about the W.A. Bush, doing all sorts of different stuff, or planning harebrained schemes to get him out of trouble for good, which were, well, I guess you'll find out what they were, ultimately, you have to stick around and have a listen. Um, And look, you know, you love a bit of Australian history, get around it, bloody ripper, mate, bloody unreal. So I want to thank alert listeners Brandon Visser and Bree, both of whom uh, sent in Old Mate Joe as a topic. So lots to get across today, of course. Let's get to it. Here we go with the story of Moondine Joe. On your marks, get set, let's go. We're going all the way back here, all the way back to February 1826, when young Joseph Belitho Johns was born in Cornwall in Britain. He would obviously later on l- later become known as Moondine Joe. We're going to call him Joe here. Uh, now, his dad... Was a blacksmith whose name was Thomas Johns, and his mum was Mary Belitha. They had six kids in all. Joe was number three, and his family was quite poor. Uh, and to make things worse, Thomas the dad died in 1933 when Joe was just seven. This meant that Joe and his three brothers they had to they had to start to work to support the family, even you know young kids, whatever else. Uh, they worked in the uh, in the copper mines, and uh, obviously rough state of affairs really for a, for a young family like this in poverty, and with the kids working in the copper mines, obviously not great, but. They did make it work. They did pull through, even with the death of uh, of, of the father Thomas here. And uh, by 1848, Joe had moved to Wales uh, to work there as an iron ore miner instead. So we go to the copper mines into the iron uh, into the iron ore mines. He's working away in Wales, but it was in 1848, right? That. Uh, Something happened uh, to begin our adventure properly. This is really where his turn uh, to, took a sharp, his, his life took a sharp left turn here. Specifically, on the 15th of November 1848, Joe and a mate of his, whose name was John Williams, they were arrested. <clears throat> now, they were cutting about at about two, up, two past two in the morning. They got stopped by a cop who was suspicious of them uh, prowling about like this. Uh, this cop arrested them. He searched them and he found a bunch of bread and cheese and bacon and mutton and suet on them, right? Now, they couldn't give a uh, you know an appropriate excuse as to why they were carrying this around them in the dead of night the cop reckoned they'd nicked all this stuff and so they were locked up and sure enough a complaint came in uh, not too long afterwards that exactly named these foodstuffs uh, and said that they'd been stolen from your know, local house so these two blokes they got done for it in the court they were found guilty despite you know protesting their innocence it was no good uh, they were they were found guilty and they Uh, As a sentence, they received how much penal servitude, do you reckon, for, you know, for nicking a midnight snack from someone's house? Unbelievably, the judge sentenced the pair of them to 10 years, 10 bloody years of penal servitude for some bacon and cheese. What the hell? Apparently our mate Joe really pissed off the judge during the trial. He's running his mouth saying all sorts of stuff he shouldn't have said. Uh, because other similar cases only got you know three months as a maximum, so Joe really stuffed it up there by being mouthy, pissing off the judge, and all of a sudden he's looking at ten years, uh, ten years of penal servitude. Here he and his mate John. So the sentence was laid down. Joe and his mate they're locked up in prison. They're transferred here and there: Millbank, Pentonville, Dartmoor. Uh, they got put aboard some prison hulks, ships that had been converted, turned into floating prisons for a while. But it was in eighteen fifty two and eighteen fifty three that things really changed for the pair of them. Uh, obviously they've been in in, in prisoner. A couple of years now, but at this point, 1852, 1853, it was decided that they were both to be transported to the penal colonies in Australia. Now, John Williams, he was sent to Van Diemen's land in 1852. Nowadays, it's known as Tasmania, where, of course, after arriving, he grew the traditional second head of the, uh, of the Tasmanian people before beginning his successful career as a film composer. No, that's obviously not true. The John Williams who wrote the soundtrack for Star Wars wouldn't be born for another 80 years. Although I couldn't find anything that refuted that he did grow a second head, so funny old place Tasmania. You never really know what's going to happen to you there. Anyway, that was that for John Williams. That's the end of him. I mean, I hope you didn't get attached to him as a character because that's the end of him in this story. Uh, but what about what about our mate Joe, right? Joe was spared the horrific fate, thankfully, of Tasmanian transportation, and instead he ended up in Western Australia? It's like, really? You go to all that trouble to send convicts all the way other side of the world to Australia and you send them to WA? I mean, the the only reason I could think that they'd do this, right, is that it was the, the transportation to WA specifically was, you know, they send people to Tasmania because they want them to suffer, right? They send people to WA because it, I think it's some kind of like secret off the books death sentence, right? Hoping they'll just die of boredom. I don't know, mate. I mean, look, if you want to punish them for their crime, sure. I mean, Tasmania, that makes sense. Absolutely. Send them to, send them to New South Wales. But... WA, I don't know. It's not so much cruel as it is just unusual punishment. I don't. Know. I've got no idea what's going on there. Anyway, so it was in 1853. Joe is packed up onto a prison ship called the Pyrenees. Uh, he's sent off to Fremantle, which these days is just a part of Greater Perth. It's down by the docks there. Uh, he arrived on the 30th of April. He got off to an absolute flyer with his new life in Australia. Let me tell you this: because after, as soon as he arrived, right, actually the day that he arrived, he was given what was called a ticket of leave. Again, as soon as he got off, uh, got off the boat. Now. Let me, tell you about, uh, let me tell you about tickets of leave here. So tickets of leave, obviously, obviously as you know, right, Britain established penal colonies in Australia uh, to send convicted criminals there. The problem was that these colonial governments in Australia, they had to feed and clothe these prisoners as they arrived, and obviously more and more were arriving all the time. So it wasn't cheap to look after these people as they'd been transported. So the ticket of leave was introduced. This was a system that was brought about back in 1801. So it's been around for quite a while by the time we get to our mate Joe. Um, these tickets, they were issued to well-behaved convicts who the government believed be able to look after themselves after they'd arrived in Australia. So uh, effectively these were a ticket of leave was essentially just parole, right? They weren't The people given them weren't technically free, but their sentence was more or less cut in half. And they could live a normal enough life. They could find work, they could get married, have kids, all that sort of stuff. They couldn't own guns, and most importantly, they couldn't board a ship, which meant that uh, obviously they couldn't just you know immediately after getting the ticket turn around, get back on the ship and it, as it goes back to uh, get back to Britain or anything. But, outside of this right a ticket of leave allowed you, it allowed you to get on with things set yourself uh, up properly in these new colonies as long as you played by the rules now if you broke the conditions of the ticket of leave you could immediately be in prison once again you'd have all your stuff confiscated and sold so if you know you break your uh, you break the conditions a couple of years in once you've set up maybe you know House, family, maybe a business, something like that. You you stood to lose a lot, so obviously you know convicts were heavily incentivized to, to play by the rules. But and if you saw out the term of the ticket, usually half the term of your original sentence, or if you're given a life sentence, ten to twelve years, you'd be freed, right? You'd get you you you'd be returned to society with all the all the rights and responsibilities that came with that, and and effectively, you know, the the slate would be more or less wiped clean. So this was a Again, a parole program that looked to get convicts back into society a bit quicker than they would have been otherwise. And I'll tell you this, a lot of convicts that were issued tickets of leave, they did very well for themselves indeed, because they couldn't leave and go back to Britain. And so instead, they involved themselves in Australia's fledgling economy. You know, again, setting up shop, going out, picking up huge bits of, you know, amounts of land to cultivate, farm, whatever else. Or, of course, later on, get involved in the gold rush that we uh, that we got across. So we talked about in episode 152, Eureka Rebellion, get across it. anyway. Many convicts ended up becoming quite wealthy indeed. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Being sent to Australia as a punishment for a crime, I just do not understand it. Bloody hell. Oh, no, judge, please don't send me to a paradise on earth with, you know, beautiful beaches, lovely warm weather. Oh, please, anything but that. What's going on there? Anyway, Joe was given his ticket to leave, as I say, as soon as he arrived. He walks off the boat a... Partially free man, at least, and he minded his p's and q's for long enough to be granted conditional pardon. Smart stuff from Joe there. You'd think he kept his head down. He got on with things, and, and he behaved himself. And ultimately, you know, won again a conditional freedom here by embracing colonial life, doing the best that he could to establish himself. Once he would gained his pardon, he moved out to the bush. He moved out to uh, the Avon Valley, northeast of Perth. Beautiful national park these days, but back then. Rugged, inhospitable, inaccessible, difficult to get to, um, and uh, known to the local Aboriginal people as Moondyne. And uh, this is where he set himself up in time. Later on, in his, in his later years, he became known as Moondine Joe. But now, after having gained this pardon, as I say, he made himself a living by building fences, securing water supplies for people living out there, and trapping any escaped livestock, horses and cattle that, cattle that had run off from people's farms. He'd bring them back. And, uh, you know, this kind of work it actually paid all right sometimes. Farmers had offered paying rewards for returning their stock. And so he eked out a simple living uh, out in the Avon Valley. However, in August 1861... Things change once again for Joe because he returned to crime. And this began, 1861, began a decade of infamous adventures on Joe's part. He spent the next 10 years in and out of prison. And again, as I said before, much of the out of part wasn't necessarily authorized. In August 1861, he returned to crime by taking an escaped horse, right? So he's off, you know, as, as I said, he's, he's off chasing these, uh, these cattle, these horses about if they escape, bring them back to farmers. But this time he comes across a horse. It's unbranded. And he gets this horse. He brands it himself which is effectively just horse theft. You know, think about it like he's nicked a car and he's put fake plates on it. Although, obviously, you know, cars don't tend to escape the Australian bush by themselves. Anyway, stealing a horse, very serious crime back then. Quite a serious crime indeed. Hefty bloody penalties. And once the cops got wind of the fact that Joe had nicked and branded a horse like this, they were after him. He was, uh, he was caught. He was arrested. He's thrown into a lockup while the stolen horse was taken as evidence. But... Not for long, because that very same night, Joe broke out of the lockup, exactly how, we're not sure, but what he did, he after he'd broken out, he snuck over to where the the, uh, the horse that had been, you know, impounded. I don't know if they impounded horses, what it's got like ye- a yellow clamp on its, uh, on its legs. I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, he goes over to where this horse is being kept, right? And will you believe it? He steals it again. But he doesn't just steal the horse, because he also took with him, just for good measure, the saddle and bridle that belonged to the magistrate that would have tried him in court for these crimes. Talk about buddy rubbing it in their faces. He nicked the tack from the very bloke who would have been presiding over his trial. So I'll tell you what, in for a penny, in for a pound, our mate Joe. Anyway, his escape wasn't very long-lived this time around. The police, they're hot on his heels. Joe knew this. He knew he was probably going to get caught again. And so he took action, rather merciless action too, to hide evidence of his crime. What he did was this, this, is, this is, it gets a bit rough, this one. So if you're of a sensitive disposition, you i I'd just steal yourself here. What he did, <clears throat> he killed the horse that he'd stolen. He killed it and uh, once it was dead, he cut the brand out of its side, meaning that now there was no proof that he'd branded it after all. Now, this wasn't enough to keep him out of prison. Once the cops caught up with him, obviously they could do him for, you know, they charged him with jailbreaking, but... That was a lot better than the alternative because stealing a horse carried a penalty of at least 10 years, 10 or more years you'd get for stealing a horse back then, whereas jailbreaking only got you three. So you know, a bit of a calculation there by our mate Joe, who decided he want to go away for uh, for jailbreaking rather than nicking a horse here, and and uh, that was the sentence that he was given in the wake of his horse stealing escapades. He was he was he was tried and convicted of uh, of jailbreaking, and he was given three years. They couldn't prove that he'd stolen the dead horse with a brand cut out of it, so they got him for jailbreaking, and he was locked up in Fremantle Prison. And I've. Uh, I've talked about some of the amazing escapes that he made out of prison. I've sort of hyped these up, so get ready because here they come. Check this one out. What he did after being locked up, you know, with his three-year uh, prison sentence, locked away in, in Fremantle Prison like this, you'll never believe how he got out. What he did? <clears throat> he served his sentence right without issue, behaving himself at all times, and then was released early for good behavior. I mean, all right, sure. Not the most exciting story, you know, escaping by the book. Sure, that's not what you tuned in for this week, but we'll get to the good stuff. Don't worry. Uh, But Yeah, this is what happened the first time. He was given another ticket to leave after a couple of years of good behaviour in prison and he went off and he found work on a farm. He worked on this farm, again, without incident until 1865. He didn't know how to keep his nose clean when he needed to. But in 1865, he was accused of killing an ox that belonged to a bloke named William Wallace. Episode 109, get across it, probably a... Probably, probably a different bloke, though, I'd guess, I'd imagine there. Anyway, interestingly, after being charged with killing this ox, right, Joe insisted that he was innocent, and he maintained his innocence for the rest of his life, but it did no bloody good because he was arrested, he was tried, and he was sentenced to 10 years of penal servitude once again. What, was, what the hell was going on with sentencing back then? I got no idea mate. 10 years for nicking a bit of bacon and cheese, 10 years for for killing an ox, I uh, 10 years for stealing a horse. I got no idea what's going on mate. Geez, ah, bloody hell they didn't muck around back then. Anyway, interestingly, Joe insisted that he was innocent of this crime as I say, and that seemed to change the way that he approached this new prison sentence. Because after he was uh, after he was, you know, put away, right, he decided That he wasn't going to sit around and serve this sentence, perhaps because he felt it was unjust, you know, as distinct from the jailbreaking sentence, which obviously he was actually guilty of. But whatever the reason, Joe was determined to escape from prison this time. He he was returned to Fremantle Prison once again, known back then as the convict establishment. Uh, But he didn't remain there for long. Inside of a week while he was out working with the other prisoners, obviously working these gangs, you know, the, the work gangs, Joe and another convict, they escaped. They ran off from the work party, they ran off into the bush, and they lived life on the run for the next month. Now, we don't have a wealth of information about his time on the run, unfortunately. He and this other prisoner whose name I couldn't even f- find out. They committed a, you know, a couple of robberies here and there, a bit of bush ranging, cutting about, getting up to no good, trying to keep themselves alive while, uh, while living life on the run here. And it was during this time, you know, living on the lamb, that, uh, that Joe became known as Moondine Joe. His infamy and his reputation began to spread uh, amongst not just, you know, the coppers and whatever else, but even other, other convicts who had uh, talked about his escape here. Anyway, he couldn't keep up life on the lamb. Ultimately, he was caught once again by the cops. They arrested him this time for jailbreaking and, uh, and also being in possession of a firearm. And so, he had another year, whacked onto his sentence for this little escapade, and he was taken back to Fremantle Prison, but this time he was kept in irons the whole time. He's clapped in irons, and he wasn't allowed out of them day and night. He worked as uh, as part of the prison work gangs, shackled, uh, you know, hand and foot like that. But he was still determined to find his freedom, both by, I might add, legitimate and illegitimate means. He he wrote to the Chief Justice petitioning a review of his sentence, which. You know, actually successfully resulted in four years being knocked off the original 10, which is, I mean, at least a little closer. Six years for killing an ox is still excessive, but bloody hell, think of that 10, unbelievable. Anyway, on top of this, on top of these, uh, you know, the legitimate grievances that he brought up, he also did stuff, all the classic stuff like trying to cut the lock out of his prison cell's door, which didn't work and ended up getting him another six months in irons. Oops. Anyway. However, August 1866 was when he pulled off a daring escape. This time, right, he teamed up with three other convicts, not just one, and managed to not only cut off his irons, but also break out of Fremantle prison once again. I don't know what they made the walls out of there, mate. Bloody cardboard by the sound of things. But once again, he was on the run, back out, you know, living the life of the Bush Ranger, the outlaw, cutting about in the outskirts of Perth. The uh, these, these uh, four bushrangers here, these four outlaws, they robbed and they stole to keep themselves alive, constantly on the run from police. And after a month of this, Joe realised that they had to change tack. He came up with a plan, therefore, and he decided to do something. Any Australian listening would be able to, uh, you know, will agree with me here. He, he decided to do something that is entirely in keeping with his new identity as a Western Australian. There is something... That seems to bind everyone from WA together. I personally, I'm from Victoria, but you know, I have seen this in, you know, essentially every Western Australian I've ever met. They seem to have this um, this shared vision and direction. Something that every single Western Australian invariably seems to see as their as their natural purpose, the thing that they are born to do. Uh, it's you know, again, in, in my limited exposure to people from WA, thankfully. Uh, it's something that I have uh, noticed that, that really unites them as as a people. And that is, of course, wanting to leave Western Australia as quick as possible and go and live somewhere, anywhere else. As a Melbourneian I've met Quite a few people from Perth, I guess. Most people from Perth seem to live in Melbourne. I, I don't know who they leave behind. I imagine Perth is just like a bloody ghost town. I, I mean, I heard the airport doesn't even have an arrival section. It's just, you know, there's, there's no point. It's just departures. Anyway, in keeping with the grand tradition of Western Australia, as I say, Moondine Joe, he decide, he decides to leave WA with his gang. And so he begins to make preparations to do exactly that. Now this, I will say... It's not an easy task, a bit easier today. But back in the day, I mean, look, Western Australia is big. It's bloody big. It is extremely bloody big, I would say. Americans love to say that, you know, they love to say things are as big as Texas, right, as though that means anything at all. Texas isn't even 700,000 square kilometres. Western Australia is over two and a half million square kilometres. So Joe's plan to walk from Western Australia across the border into South Australia, it involves a massive trek across, you know, what is effectively uninhabited wilderness. In a car, right, in a car, it takes 15 hours to get from Perth to the WA border. And this is back in 1866. There's no cars, mate. They can't get in the Holden Commodore and and, and cruise across the Nullarbor. They have to walk if they walked every day for 12 hours a day most of it through baking hot scrubland with no shade or cover it would have taken 3 weeks just to reach the border and then another 3 weeks to reach civilized no well, I was going to say another 3 weeks to reach civilization but sorry what i should say is it take them another 3 weeks to reach adelaide which is you know an entirely different thing something else altogether obviously anyway the plan the plan was very bloody ambitious, to say the least. But Joe and his gang, they made preparations for it, or they attempted to at any rate. On the 5th of September in 1866, the escaped prisoners, they robbed a, a shop, a store, Everett's General Store, in Tudier, outside Perth. And they took everything they could carry, clothing and boots and blankets, guns and knives, and as much food as they could gather and they chose this shop very deliberately. Let me tell you this: it was owned by, by a bloke whose name was James Everett, and he was a former convict himself and an enemy of Joe from the past. This robbery was such an ordeal for Everett's business that he actually ended up going under and closing the shop sometime later. And it was a very, it was a deliberate, it was a very deliberate and, and targeted robbery at Everett himself, paying him back for you know who knows what sort of rivalry or, or uh, you know friction they had in their past. Anyway, after the robbery. Joe and his gang, they set off east along the track that connected WA with the east and they made it, uh, well, I mean, I guess a fair way in the abstract, 300 kilometres from Perth, a a, a decent way, but ultimately, you know, barely 10% of the way from Perth to Adelaide. And the police, they found the convict's tracks on the the track they were walking on um, and they followed them east finally catching up uh, catching up with them in a place called Boodolin Soak. It's actual real name. It's uh, still a place today. And there at Boodolin Soak, they were captured once again and returned to their old home, Fremantle Prison. But this time, things were very different for Moondine Joe. <clears throat> Not only did Joe get five years of hard labour added to his sentence, he was also put into a special escape-proof cell designed specifically for habitual jailbreakers like him. And some sources even told me that the cell was actually made for particularly him, not just people like him, but actually for Moondine Joe. You can still see the cell today. You can go online and and, and find pictures of it. Have a look. It's amazing. Very small and narrow as you can imagine. And it's thick stone walls aligned with wooden railroad sleepers. And further, these sleepers have been filled with nails. They're basically, they are basically they're look like studded wood. And this meant that, you know, obviously tunneling through wood filled with nails and then thick, uh, thick stone walls was quite a tall order. The only gap in the walls were, of course, the reinforced door and a tiny window that let in a small amount of light. And poor Joe, he spent 22 hours a day inside this cell, only two hours a day outside for exercise, and he was fed nothing but bread and water. It was a miserable and a cruel existence for this poor bloke. But happily for Joe, it didn't last. When his health began to fail, a prison doctor ordered that his exercise hours be extended and that he'd get a lot more time outside. Now, usually, prisoners would have been forced to spend a lot of time outside doing hard labour in these work gangs. But... The WA governor, John Hampton, he wasn't about to fall for that again. He refused to let Joe out of the prison to work with the other convicts, knowing that he'd probably just escape again. And so as a result, the rocks that Joe was, uh, you know, was ordered to break were brought to him. They were brought to him in the prison yard and Joe he was let out there and made to break them apart with a sledgehammer during his exercise hours. So it got him out of the cell, got him out in the open air at least, and, you know, Obviously, as he was at such high risk of escape, they were not going to let him out of their sights. But at least he was out of this horrible cell for a few more hours a day. Now, it was ordered that the rocks that he broke, right, just as, a, as another security measure, make sure he didn't get up to any, any funny business. It was ordered that the rocks that he broke up should be cleared out immediately once he'd broken them. So he didn't, you know, he, he didn't try to pull a fast one on them. Uh, And on top of this, he was to work under constant supervision of, uh, of the prison guards. In fact, Governor Hampton, he was so confident that Joe wouldn't be able to escape that he even said to him, if you get out again, I'll forgive you. Now, Joe, he got to work each day breaking rocks in the courtyard before returning to his escape proof cell. But I'll tell you this. He did manage to escape all the same. I mean, how did he do it? He's in his, either, you know, he's in this nearly airtight, this absolutely bloody escape-proof cell, or he's stuck in the courtyard breaking rocks under strict, strict supervision. How did he manage to get away from this? Well, here's what happened. The prison staff, rather than follow orders To the letter and promptly remove all the rocks that uh, that Joe broke. They instead they let let them pile up in the courtyard. So he's still under supervision, but all the rocks that he's smashing up, they're not being carted out as he breaks them. They're left to kind of pile up a bit. Now eventually, this pile grew so large that it obscured Joe from the waist down. And once he realised this, he started to use his sledgehammer not just to smash and break open the rocks that he'd been given, but also to bash the stone wall of the courtyard itself just a little bit every now and again and he you know as time went on slowly but surely he broke away at the limestone prison wall working on this hole that was as i say you know hidden by the pile of broken rocks he did it low enough to the ground that the uh, that the guards couldn't see it and of course you know they're expecting to hear the sound of a sledgehammer smashing against rocks. so every now and again when he's whacking the uh, the wall it's not raising it's not raising their suspicion as the weeks continued, he kept chipping away at the wall, smashing away at it with his sledgehammer, you know, every now and again, slowly, slowly but surely. And then finally, on the 7th of March 1867, he broke through the wall altogether and straight into the backyard of the prison superintendent's house, who lived right next to the prison. He slipped out through this backyard once again, fled into the bush, making one final dramatic escape. Now, of course, a huge search followed, but the police they couldn't find, hide nor hear of him. He'd gotten away with it. And once other prisoners heard the story of Moondine Joe and his escape, they also had escape plans of their own they put it into action. And so the prison staff, the police, they had their hands full, and Moondine Joe he got away with it. And that would have been the end of the story of Moondine Joe slipping off the pages of history into obscurity had it not been, for a stroke of particularly bad luck that he suffered two years later. Joe lived life, as an, uh, lived life as an escaped convict very successfully for years. We don't know where he went or what he did, but he had, for all intents and purposes, as I say, gotten away with it because he was, he was living life well and truly under the radar. But on the 25th of November in 1869 at Horton Winery, still around today, you can buy their wines down the bottle or even today, Horton Winery, the police were called to the winery to the vineyard to help recover the body of a man who had drowned The staff at the vineyard they came out they helped the police drag the body out of the water and once the body had been recovered and secured they offered the cops a drink you know, obviously don't go down the go down the vineyard help them get this body out well they may as well stick around for a, and, and you know wet their whistles now. You'll never guess, of course, who the drowned man was, but the police, ah, they'll deal with that question later. They'll put that, that question aside for one moment to join the owner inside as he goes down to the cellar to fetch some wine. And the owner, once he'd opened up the cellar and, you know, was going down to, to, to fetch some vino, out of the cellar came rushing a man, a thief, right, who had been nicking wine from the reserves downstairs unluckily for this bloke however this thief as he comes you know barreling up from the cellar he ran straight past the owner and right into the very literal long arm of the law the cops are there they've come inside uh, obviously to have a have a drink and they catch this thief in the act and uh, quite interestingly, actually, the, the thief, the identity of the thief is uh, revealed to be none other than Moondine Joe himself. What? I said, I mean, I told you, you're never going to guess who, who the drowned man was. And I'm right. You would never guess. I've got no I've got no bloody idea who, who, who it was. It's irrelevant. He's not part of the story. You know, he, I'll tell you who it wasn't. It wasn't Moondine Joe because he's, he's busy trying to nick wine off of, uh, off of, of Horton Winery. And unfortunately, he picked the wrong vineyard and the wrong time to burgle on a night when the police just happened to have been called out there for a completely unrelated reasons what are the odds but once again he is caught and is taken into police custody after all these years of living you know effectively scot free as an as an escape prisoner anyway of course He's hauled back to prison. He's given another couple of years for good measure. At this stage, he wasn't going to be released until 1884, the poor bastard. He spent the first 18 months of his term uh, back in Fremantle Prison clapped in irons. But check this out. Not long after he was released from the the irons, uh, he was immediately caught in the carpenter's workshop trying to file a key to unlock his cell. So this bloke just doesn't quit. He was happily never convicted of uh, attempted escape for the key because he used, uh, once he was caught, right, he was caught trying to file down this key, uh, he used the highly inventive strategy of throwing the key over the prison wall when he was discovered uh, and it wasn't found and the lack of evidence meant that he wasn't ever convicted of it. So there you go. Anyway, the best part of the story, however, is yet to come. Here it is now. Are you ready for this? This is the the very best part of the entire story of Moondyne Joe because remember before, right, how I mentioned that Joe would, uh, he'd write to those in authority, right? He'd request remissions of his sentences. Often he'd get them, you know, reviews, whatever else in his sentences would be lessened. Well, he clearly wasn't happy to spend the rest of his life in prison. He clearly wasn't happy to spend, you know, the next however many years rotting away in, in, in Fremantle prison. So in 1871, he pursued a very interesting line indeed in trying to get out of prison, he cast his mind back to 1867 and the words that Governor Hampton had said to him after locking him up in this escape-proof cell, if you get out again, I'll forgive you. Now, armed with that promise, he took his case to the Comptroller General of Convicts, had his story confirmed by the Assistant Superintendent of the convict establishment, this bloke agreed that Governor Hampton had indeed made that promise, and, believe it or not, Based on that promise, based on the promise that the governor made to free Joe if he ever escaped from this escape-proof cell, Joe was actually, once again, issued with a ticket of leave. Unbelievable, but it's true. This actually happened. The authorities were actually as good as their word. Can you believe it? Joe was duly released with a ticket of leave, and apart from a brief one-month stint for a minor offence in 1872, he behaved himself and he was ultimately issued with a certificate of freedom on the 27th of June 1873 he was free now did he stay out of trouble of course not no he didn't and for the rest of life he the rest of his life he would have minor run-ins with the law here and there but he was never locked up again and so he behaved himself a little better at least in 1879, he got married. He married a young widow named Louisa Hearn and they cut about exploring and prospecting for gold. He even discovered a cave, which still bears the name Moondine Cave named after him there. Um, and they had a great time together until her untimely death in 1893. Very sad. And uh, sadly for Joe from there, he uh, look, old age got the better of him. He began to develop dementia. And one day in 1900, the year 1900, the turn of the century here, the age of 74, Joe was found wandering the streets of Perth without too much of an idea of who he was or where he was. And so he was picked up and he was taken to an, uh, to an asylum. But, old Joe had one more trick up his sleeve. Because, if you'll believe it, there's one final twist in the tale here right at the end. This asylum that he was taken to, right, this asylum to which he was committed, it just happened to be... A converted convict depot that he himself had escaped from 40 years previously. Now, obviously the poor bloke, he's not all there upstairs anymore. Maybe he was confused to be back in what he might have thought was a convict depot again. But at the age of 74, perhaps his old instincts kicked back in because what do you think he did once he was confined to this asylum for his own safety? That's right, he escaped. And he escaped again and escaped a third time. Three times in all, they could not keep Moondyne Joe in this asylum. Some habits die so hard. Moondyne Joe, he wasn't going to let any four walls contain him. Old age be damned. Moondyne Joe finally died after a life filled with adventure and misadventure on the 13th of August, 1900. After all of his daring and clever escapes, after his lifelong determination to be free. And today, you can still go and visit his grave in Fremantle Cemetery, where his headstone reads the Welsh word hryðr, freedom. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Moondyne Joe. Bloody love getting around a bit of Australian history. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Once again, big thank you to Brandon and Bree. Who both sent this in as a topic suggestion? I'd love to hear from the listeners. And, and of course, if you want to do the same thing, hear all the boring housekeeping uh, information to tell you exactly how you can do that. HalfArtsHistory.net is the website. You can go there and uh, find not only old episodes, but of course the contact form if you want to get in touch with the show. Uh, anchor.fm for the feed. Now, I'm having some issues with Spotify at the moment. Um, the episodes are taking a little while to upload to Spotify. They do go up same time every week, so if there are issues getting it on Spotify, it's usually taking a couple of days to upload there for some reason. No idea why, but you can use other pipes. You can jump on Pocket Cast or something else like that if you want to grab it, uh, you know, on, on time. Or again, just download the MP3 from uh, HalfassHistory.net. I do apologize about that. I'm going to get on the blower with uh, with Spotify and see what the what the holdup is there because I'm not too pleased about it um anyway uh, a special thank you of course as usual goes to all the uh, exalted patreons who are um supporting me financially week in and week out thank you so much to everyone there if you want to go and support me on patreon patreon.com slash half ass issue if you want to Add your name to their exalted ranks. And, of course, thanks for listening. All the same. Even if you're not a patron, I still support the... I still appreciate the support you're offering me by listening to this dumb podcast week in and week out. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely amb- ambivalent. That is that for this week of half past History, We're leaving with a question posed on Reddit, of course. We've talked a lot about prisons, talked a lot about uh, that sort of thing this week. And so, Redditor Junior, I don't know how to say it. It doesn't matter. Has a prison-related question for us here, asking... <clears throat> If prisons are separated for women and men, how can prison populations rise every year?